So I think from a market perspective, Southeast Asia is still in its early stages. We probably do not have that much of that to have so many stable coins. End of the day, circulation and liquidity is everything. So the one that is pretty much have the most adoption in terms of circulation and support will be the one that most probably 90% of everything will happen at. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. Cryptocurrency and fintech sectors are converging in the Asia-Pacific region. And most recently, Xpers, a Y Combinator company, has launched their first stablecoin in Southeast Asia with XSGD. To tell that story, I have Liu Tianwei, CEO and co-founder of Xpers, to take us through the journey of what happened to bring this stablecoin and its purpose to life. Tianwei, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Bernard. Thanks for the invite. Happy to be here. I have actually been a long-time customer of Xverse. I've been using it to do all my crypto trading with CoinHako and Gemini. It's great to have you on the show because digging through your LinkedIn, I realized you have also been an ex-Amazonian as well. <laughs> so I want to start off with my first question to all my first-time guests. How did you start your career? Thank you for the first for the support. And yeah, I didn't know that we are both are Amazonian before this. So actually, uh, I started my career as an engineer. I was uh, you know, born and raised in Singapore. Went to NUS, the Fusion Around, uh, went to university. I was very fortunate enough. I was in computer science, computer engineering, actually. Got into the NUS OVC College program, NOC. So uh, I spent a year in Silicon Valley at Stanford, but I worked part-time as a software engineer for some startups. Very fortunate then, after I graduated, the colleagues over there got me back to, to join them for a startup that they were working on. This was uh, WinLab. It was uh, the first Android watch startup in the world. They were making the Android watch that we all know today. Before the Android watch, they were making the Android OS. I was hired as a software engineer. I worked there for about a year and a half before they run out of money. Hardware is hard. They got actually hired by Google. But due to visa issues, um, I didn't manage to wait for the whole acquisition to happen. To referral, I ended up working at Amazon. I was at Amazon for about three years, almost three years. And then I was working as a software engineer then in the big data infrastructure at Lab 126, the division that makes Kindle devices. I think you're familiar with that. And then, uh, however, I was actually more of a, actually working more towards AWS side, right? Because I was a big data engineer. So AWS, Hadoop, MapReduce, those were the things that used to be. <laughs> it's a lot of buzzwords this day. I still remember then we just thought that we are doing batch processing. And uh, it was still an interesting time, but that's how I started my, myself as a software engineer. But uh, I have been, you know, always a Singaporean. I always want to come back to Asia. Uh, I travel back every single year because of family and ties here, right? And 2015, 2014, I was getting bored at Amazon. And every year when I come back, I was thinking about what can I actually do in Asia Pacific? And eventually we were looking at this problem related to payments. It all started because um, I was looking at the lab on 26 and Amazon gift, I don't know whether they still do, <laughs> I know we all know Amazon is very frugal. They give 10% discount for employees. So when the Kindle Paperwhite came out, it was a very hot selling device. And a lot of my friends in Singapore wanted it. And then I think Amazon didn't distribute the product to um, Singapore itself. A lot of friends asked me to buy it. So I bought the Kindle devices for them. I FedEx it back. But when it comes to payment, it was such a pain, right? <laughs> because I think that was before fast. People were trying to gyro me. I was asking them for Venmo, asking them to PayPal me. None of those things kind of existed. Payla wasn't there as well. They were just like, I'm going to just do a bank transfer. And, you know, those days we're doing gyro. It takes two days for the fund to reach you. And you don't even know who the hell it transfer you the money, right? So that was the genesis of the problem. I remember I, I shipped back, I think 10 Kindle, was it 11? I forgot. And I, I got like one missing payment and it was during Christmas. And then all the way to Chinese New Year, which I was back in Singapore, I still figured out who have a pay me. 
and then this whole thing just you know really kick the engineer in me like, I, I can solve this let me let me look at it what what is wrong can we do an api you know the genesis then went to that that must be because that you know there was not an easy use api on top of the banking layer there's non-credit card based that allows you know developers like us and i was engineers right remember so i was like if i have an api i can build an app so that's what we have been thinking about we wanted to build API layer on top of bank. And that was where everything started, right? So we were hacking away, you know, we, we got into YC and the rest of this was where we are today. You touched on the origin story a little bit, but I'm going to dive deeper later. But before we go into X first, what are the interesting lessons in your career journey that you can share with my audience out there who may be inspired to become entrepreneurs in the future? Mm. I think it's part of Axel's culture, actually. I, I shout out to all my new staff when we onboard them, right? One of the biggest lessons I learned in my entire career is no, don't go to your boss with just a problem. Speak up, go to your boss with a problem and a proposed solution. And it's going to be very, very helpful for your career. I've done that multiple times in my career that I realized it was super, super helpful, right? I think any kind of managers up there or anyone that you feel that is very high up, they're generally nice people. And if you just go there and just tell them about a problem, they can't really give you an immediate solution. And they were like thinking what they can do. But if you go there and tell them that, hey, I recognize this is a problem in the company, However, I have a solution. Asking for permission just to do something or forgiveness is a lot easier, right? They, they will definitely be able to give you a quick yes and no, and you will definitely be able to be better recognized for the initiative you take, right? And, and that has you know, got me pretty far you know, at Amazon, at a startup, even at Expert itself. So that comes to the main subject of the day. I want to get to know X first because I've been a longtime user. Uh, in your view as the CEO and co-founder of the company, what is the mission and vision of Exfers? The vision of Exfers has always been the same, right? We want to create a trusted digital financial ecosystem in Southeast Asia. And the reason for that is like, the problem that I was talking about earlier, right? When I first came back to Asia, I saw a lot of financial products that was very readily available in the Valley, in Europe, but not quite available over here. And I always thought that Asia should be the next big thing, but you know, we realized that payment is pretty broken. So we wanted to basically be part of the whole infrastructure to do so, to allow people to create a financial ecosystem that is going to bring about better wealth betterment for the whole entire region. So the mission has always been focused then on enabling and accelerating digital businesses in providing what we call equal financial opportunity to everyone in Southeast Asia, right? So be it a, a fintech company that's trying to do blockchain, they need API access, they need to be able to innovate on top of that, or be it on the, the underbank um, you know, regions of Indonesia, which we are very heavily involved right now in, be able to better serve the community to give them the same access that all of us currently enjoy. So you already talked about the story of your 11 Kindles and that's how you inspired you to start off Xverse, which is what you want to solve for the end customer. Then you signed up with Y Combinator and it's part of the Y Combinator 2015 batch in Silicon Valley. Can you talk about how that experience helped your team to build Xverse to what it is today? So I actually started as an engineer, right? You started as a weekend hack and we're just working on the problem. I think when I, when I started the company then, or I don't even know I'm starting a company, all we know is we are focusing on solving problems. It was just a few friends, few fellow engineers that were trying to work on a problem that we have. So actually, I, I told that, I shared in the company as well. The company first code base, because I'm an engineer, the GitHub first check-in was 2012, and itself was in the 4th of July itself, which is the independent days in the US. For friends that are over there would know that that's where you barbecue. <laughs> You hang out. I had a bit of no life. I was working on an Xbox. So the first check-in on Xbox actually happened on 4th of July in 2012. So that's how long it was actually in your head, right? You were trying to work on it. But I think the company really materialized and accelerated because of Y companies. We were um, you know, working on it part-time and due to the time zone, right? The, the customers are in Asia. I was still in the state working in the Valley. 
and wake up in the middle of the night with the bug problems. And I was almost saying that, hey, this doesn't quite make sense. We don't make money. And then this is quite kind of iterative thing, right? We have to take this seriously. The amount of transaction we are doing is increasing. These are real people's money and I get pretty worried about that. So I think Y Combinator was the so-called catalyst, right? That kick off this whole process. That makes the founder commitment that we should stop what we are doing invest our time in the next you know, three months to see whether we can make this thing actually work and we actually have something that you know be able to raise funds based on. So that was the first thing, right? What YC really gives you, right? It gives us the ability for us to focus. All the co-founders quit their job. We got into Valley. We spent three to four months working with a bunch of very senior zero entrepreneurs. They can really help you, right? Like some of my mentors are still my good friends today, like Justin Khan and Paul Graham. They are the ones that actually advise you on some of the problems, the people that you're facing, tell you, teach you how to pitch, right? What to say? I remember my first pitch deck, Paul was just literally deleting everything and just say, don't say this, say this. You know, that was super helpful and concise. It helps you understand how to convey that message to your investors. And on the product side, I think that was one of the most productive things you can do over the last three months as a program, right? Is there's this process of constant iterating. You work on a problem, you have a thesis, does it work? Does it not work? And, and they will tell you all the key things that you know founders like us always make to focus on talking to the customers. You should be figuring out what the problem is that shall build something people want. I think there's a lot of literature on that, on the whole YC process, but it's a magical experience. I think you know, going through it was one of the major success factors I had to contribute to the early days of Exodus itself. So who are the current investors of Exodus? So Exodus itself you know, is currently now part of Fast Financial Group. Our last Series D funding was actually led by B Capital and it's in the venture itself. However, I think over the years, we have quite a bit of uh, angel investors that came in, like Eduardo Salvin, a Facebook co-founder of YC itself. Golden Gate Ventures was one of our most early VC as well, and 500 Startup, Quest Ventures, quite a few of them, actually. What are the products and services now today customers will be able to access with Exodus? I mean, as a customer, I know I usually use Exodus to transfer money from my bank account to a cryptocurrency exchange to buy tokens, but there must be a lot of other services. I think businesses also use Exodus for other users as well. Can you elaborate a lot on your products and services? Sure. I think fundamentally, Exodus is a B2B company. We are a payment infrastructure company. We help fintech digital business collect payment, disperse funds, or you know, have store of funds in terms of uh, licensing that's needed on that. We are most probably known in Singapore for the, the clients that have been using us. I think our, what is not famous is not us, actually it's our clients are very famous, right? So some of the cryptocurrency exchanges does use us. I think you have experience in using it at Binance, at Gemini, at CoinHackles. These are some of our early customers and, and still our customers to today. So we help them with the on-ramp and off-ramp in terms of uh, payments acceptance and dispersing of funds back to the bank side of things. But underlyingly, we are the P2P, you know, some people call it payment gateway, but it's a bit beyond that these days. That allows them to facilitate and make this process as seamless as possible. Of course, our, our print have uh, expanded quite a bit beyond just cryptocurrency exchanges. Today, we serve crowdfunding platform. We learn uh, P2P lending platforms in Indonesia, a lot of fintechs in terms of just typical e-commerce as well in Indonesia as well. What is your current geographic footprint in Southeast Asia? From a, a business perspective, we are already live in both Singapore and Indonesia. Um, actually, our Indonesia footprint is pretty large as well. But from a company perspective, we have a very diverse workforce. Uh, we have folks over five to seven countries, I think. I last counted. I think uh, we have an office actually in, in Taipei, Taiwan, which is pretty big for engineering and product development. Indonesia, of course, definitely. And then in Vietnam and Malaysia as well. Since you are a fellow Amazonian, I would definitely ask you this question. What does great look like for experts for the next three years? <laughs> I think Amazon like to you know, look at uh, look at things backwards, right? We look at what is actually what success looks like and stuff like that. 
I think for us that is what coding Amazon is always you know day one here. We're still working on the same problems that we have been solving. I think we make a slight step, but it's maybe like 10 a.m. instead of 9 a.m. We still have a long way to go. Success definitely look like for us in terms of uh, you know, the work that's being done is you know success in terms of better financial access and connection across Southeast Asia. I think that's the uh, in, from a financial perspective, right? And that has been a big part of the mission because. I think over the last five years, we definitely see the rise of fintech and you know, a lot of more mature fintechs in, in the industry. We are starting to be able to you know, make it easier to fund funds. I, I don't know whether people still remember the days that you're doing gyro. <laughs> and these are, you know, fast is there right now. It is seamless. You don't really experience it, but there's a lot of work that has to go on in the background, right? So for success for us, basically, you know, better financial services across the whole industry with us disappearing at the background, right? We shouldn't be appearing in front of the customers, right? When we are successful at our work, you will probably never heard about us. And that's where I think we'll be happy about the whole industry advancing in that direction. So I wanted to come to the story of the Straits X Singapore dollar, aka XGD. I've actually taken some time to read through your white paper. So based on my understanding, reading the white paper is that Straits X is the first stable coin initiative with a focus in Southeast Asia. So it also explores uh, the migration of centralized ledgers, which document flows onto distributed ledger technology or aka DLTs that you call it. So it allows people or organizations to transact using a one-for-one collateralized and denominated in their native ASEAN fiat currencies. So the recent launch XSGD is actually fully collateralized one-for-one by the Singapore dollar and can be redeemed for one Singapore dollar itself. This is similar to a USDC circle or USDC tether or die in the US. I thought maybe it's interesting to sort of give some total on-chain transactions today is at 1.91 billion. I think there's a total supply of 177 million XSGD. I think these are very interesting numbers. To start off the conversation, what is the motivation behind Straight X? I think this got to do with a lot of the culture of X itself and you know, maybe one of some of the among the founders itself. So first thing, I think the, the founders are fans of cryptocurrency. I think that is given. We are engineers at heart, right? So we like building things. We understand where things are heading and blockchain technology really fascinates us. And we have been very early on and very fortunate to be very close to the ecosystem since the early days. So these are to do also with the YC culture that we can build to us, right? We talk to the customers constantly and see what the customer actually wants. What we have been seeing here over the last six to seven years, we are a payment infrastructure company at heart. We, we want to build out payment infrastructure. We like you know, what blockchain is doing. We like cryptocurrency. I speak it multiple times. I, I feel this is the internet of our generation. Hopefully I'm not too old, but like it's like the next internet, right? That, that I went through dot-com bubble burst and I went through that when I was in the valley itself. It was some really bad time. But at the same time, I think the, the technology is great. It is a solution that I think a lot of people are looking at, but we're looking for more problem to fix. So that itself is the, the thesis of some of the genesis of what we are looking at. We are definitely looking to build out real-world use case for the blockchain technology side of things, right? We are not a cryptocurrency exchange. We are not into that much into speculative side of things. We don't do ICO. We really look at where the application side of things can really happen. So while we are looking at this at the same time, we serve some of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges across in Southeast Asia right now. And they have constantly given us feedback that, you know, what are the new direction that they are hoping to go into? So for those that are very deep into blockchain side of things, stablecoin is almost known as the holy grail product. That is, you know, the biggest problem that needs to be solved in the blockchain side of things. I think before this, Mr. Manham's talked about this before, Bitcoin is great, right? But I can't buy a coffee with Bitcoin. The prices keep changing. So the technology is great. You need something that has stable value. And these have great application use case 
for a lots of different things in the real world use case side of things. There's non-speculative, right? Even speculative side, there's demand for it. Bitcoin prices might go up, it might go down. Sometimes you want to take a safe haven hedge, right? If you decided to sell, you want to hold it in a currency that is stable. So those are, again, demand from the market. So our customers talk to that a lot. But we also saw it from a different perspective. Uh, as a payment company, uh, while we are working in Asia Pacific, the likes of Grab, Gojek, all these fintechs are coming out. We definitely saw that. And e-wallet plays are everywhere. I still remember when I was still in Jakarta. So before the pandemic, I, I go to Indonesia every single week. Right? I'll fly there on budget airline, Monday night, Asia, last flight in. I'll come back on Friday. So when I'm staying over there, experiencing live on the ground, you will see the likes of e-wallet wars, right? So many different e-wallet company, every one of them giving cash back. Everyone is just trying to own the user side of things. And when we talk to all of them, you realize that the problem is almost everyone is building wall garden. This ecosystem is belong to myself because there's a huge fear, right? I, I think maybe to the eyes freeze over twice, right? That you will ever see Grab accept GoPay, right? GoPay accepts Grab, right? That is not going to happen because they are very afraid of losing their users. And that's where we saw a, a solution like the stable coin, a, a blockchain open ecosystem can help solve that problem. Giving something that allow people to separate the store of value to start from uh, the user itself, ownership is a huge uh, value add to the ecosystem, right? They can build things that they allow it to be completely decentralized without having to invest into other people ecosystem that they will lose control of their user base. So product like that is definitely needed as a long-term direction. So coupled with the demand coming from exchanges, and that's where we started exploring that. So that's where the idea of having a stablecoin product was created almost three, four years ago. Actually, people do not know how much time sometimes financial products takes to get out there. Like all big ideas, it's not really small. We, we were just thinking of it over the water cooler talks. So we're saying that, hey, we needed to build something like that. Is there something that we can do in-house? How do we look at it? I, I was talking to one of my early engineers that have been working on uh, you know, for almost three to four years now. He will tell you that I recruited him to work on uh, a stablecoin project almost four years ago. I told him that we wanted to launch this product. We are looking at it, but uh, we need to explore it deeper to see how can we materialize it because it's really not easy to bring it, such a product to market. That's right. So what are the use cases that the stablecoin XSGD solve for the market? This is something that a lot of people do not understand. The stablecoin value is actually very important, not just for consumers like us to transact, but also for businesses to transact across cross-border payments and e-commerce as well. I think that the first primary use case is back to payments itself. It's this whole concept of having a permissionless store of value on the blockchain itself. I mentioned like wall guarded, everyone wants to own the user because that is how the business model works. Grab, customer acquisition costs, I pay one time, I can push them to different part of my ecosystem and hopefully be able to become profitable in the long run, right? Same concept applies to almost every big company out there. There's VC funded, there's going hyper growth. However, they, you know, having an open, interoperable payment system that they can connect their user without having to give their user information away is super important to them as well. So having XSGD on the blockchain means to say anybody, really, truly, any, they don't have to talk to experts. They will just be able to say, hey, I will accept XSGD as a payment. I'll build out my own financial model. I'll program it on the blockchain itself. It doesn't belong to experts. The blockchain is permissionless. It is owned by everyone that's contributing to the blockchain itself. Experts' sole purpose and only job is to just be the custodian of the funds, right? We guarantee that that will be backed by a dollar. We are regulated by MES. So we deal with that part of things, right? So if anyone wants to redeem it, we'll definitely allow that to be redeemed. But what you know, ecosystem you build on top of that is fully owned by you, and you will be able to do that. And that's one of the core reasons why we developed that product. 
So another use case that we are seeing definitely right now is this whole decentralized finance, which is on top of the same concept, right? There's a lot of um, interesting use cases that we have seen in, in financial product, that traditional finance, basically, that is moving onto the blockchain. I think that's the whole innovation that everyone is super excited for. When I first saw Ethereum and stuff like that, you know, having a, a Turing complete ecosystem, what really struck in my head, I think Bitcoin solved the problems of decentralized trust. Trust is inherently expensive, right? If you think about it, when we are running a company like Express or you're running a bank, it requires a lot of regulation. It requires a lot of senior folks that has been doing this, you know, with huge trust and a board of directors that have 30 years of experience in this industry. That's trusted, right? And trust is expensive. So Bitcoin, cryptocurrency was the first thing that we can solve the trust, right? Trust can be done without having one or few guys that is, you know, very well paid, can be done in a different form. However, Ethereum's and Ethereum complete solution like that solves another big part of the problem. We can now provide this as a unique price, right? As a programmable mutizer value. You can offer a financial product that is a dollar. I can't offer you an insurance for a dollar, but you probably can do that right now on the blockchain because all these can be programmed. We can unitize this. We can make this thing work for very low entry points, right? And that itself is truly fascinating with these two things. You're seeing right now a big innovation in, in decentralized finance field in terms of lending, in terms of insurance, in terms of trading. Anything that is traditionally being done on the traditional finance can be programmed onto the blockchain. But stuff like that, again, needs stable coin, right? It needs a stable store of value. I can have an insurance policy, but you can't have an insurance policy in Bitcoin because Bitcoin prices might fluctuate today versus tomorrow. Versus I can have an insurance policy that's paying out in sing dollars, and I know that will be most probably the same amount of sing dollars that I use every day. So stuff like that is where we are super excited where this product will go. So in terms of DeFi or decentralized finance, what you're talking about that the XSGD as a stablecoin can actually be used, for example, in liquidity pools, lending with, say, Aave and Compound or something even like perpetual swaps with DYDX, for example. Yeah, we're already seeing adoption in that. I think on the liquidity swap stuff, you see it on Uniswap itself. Uh, there's a recent startup uh, that came out with called DFX Finance doing um, you know, stable coin to stable coin swap. I think those are solving real world problems of FX that is really needed in this space right now. So as a long time expert user, I have some coins on the very beginning of the day, on the day of when you launch XHSGD. So I wanted to test this. So I did a very successful transaction of $50 into my MetaMask wallet from the StraySex platform itself. So I'm just very curious, why is the limit at $50? I think this is a lot of question among a lot of the users who have done the transaction just as a test. Like I said, Exos is uh, ultimately a, a regulated company on MES. We are a major payment institution. So very fortunate to be able to do that. So we have our controls and recent mitigation policies that have to be you know, fully aligned with MES itself. So one of the big problems of building a product like stablecoin itself is the travel compliance and AML risk related to that. I think we are one of the pioneers in that. I think XSGD is one of the first travel compliance um, stablecoin in Asia Pacific. Um, and the reason for the $50 you're talking about is to make sure that it's actually a, a test of um, ownership of the blockchain address that you're seeing. It's just the first transaction, right? So the first transaction, we need to see you funding it from an account that is under your control. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? How do you know that you have a, your own address? We need you to send money back to us or send in XSGD back to us. But if you can't get XSGD, how do you send us in the first place? The, the compromise that we did then was to have allowing people to first do an initial withdrawal of $50, and then you have to send it back. You send a dollar back, 50 cents back. We will then know that the address is fully owned by you. However, tech innovation has caught up. I think we are rolling out a new version of that. 
that will allow us to use a MetaMask to do a signature. Just doing a signature signing of a blockchain address to allow us to know that you really own that address. That will allow the basically withdraw hopefully unlimited amount in the coming days. We are, we are something that we're working hard on. You just talked about you have an engineer who started four years ago to put this together. So what is the process like for your team to put together the Street Sets initiative from the white paper all the way to launch? I think that was an interesting story. I think the engineer is still with us. It's actually the CTO and the lead of the whole Straight Edge project right now. But like I said, we, we were looking at the space, right? I think we are quite familiar with the whole blockchain space because we serve a lot of companies over in that industry. This is like the third bloom that I'm seeing already, right? So everyone gets excited, but it's a cycle thing. I think the last cycle, is it 2017, is where you know, the idea of this whole thing kind of started. We were talking about a need for a stablecoin project, but we have no idea how to actually do it in, in, in Asia Pacific. So just literally water cooler talk, right? And then I met this engineer, you know, how is the engineer? And then we were, we were talking about it and he was like, okay, so how, how do you want to approach the problem, right? So we dig deep into the regulation side right? and then we are very fortunate. One of our co-founders is actually a lawyer. So Samson is a lawyer and he has been, you know, well-versed in this whole payment service act. And before that, PSLA, one And I was also reading through it, right? To understand how would a stablecoin fit into our existing regulation framework? And, and the closest one that we saw was actually the, you know, then it was called widely accepted stock value facility because of the way that it has been structured that every single dollar is going to be guaranteed by a partnering bank, right? A bank will underwrite the, the dollar to dollar matching in case of an insolvency by the, the operating company. And then at the same time, this is regulated by MAS. That will give a fundamental assurance that every dollar that we issue on the blockchain is backed by a dollar sitting with a full bank that is then audited and backed by MES, right? So that's whole, this whole three-party setup. So from a legal framework, uh, that's where we first saw it. Of course, the regulation have changed quite a bit since then. The widely accepted stock value facility have dissolved. Now we just know it as major payment institution and there's a class of license activity called e-money. So however, it, the, the framework did continue then on and we have worked with MES very closely to ensure that that's how stablecoin is being regulated in Singapore itself. But it all started with that idea, right? That how can we do something in the regulation framework in Asia Pacific? Then understanding how this regulation will actually work and fitting in something that the existing regime can handle and understand and compromise. That's where everything really started. So then I think like 2017 after the bloom, we really wanted to work on something like that. 2018, when there's the idea started to say that, hey, actually, I think we can fit this under the current framework. We kick off the team, we started hiring Jin Hao, getting a team in, working with MES, working our lawyers to figure out how to submit this idea to MES. So that's where we started our application for license. We really pushed the company to be regulated. Uh, I think post 2018, we actually are not regulated at all in, in Singapore, but I think that was a big move that we wanted to do a stablecoin project. We pushed ourselves to be fully regulated under the existing regime, which is a uh, widely accepted stock value facility then. And then 2019 was the turning point, right? Where we got the licenses and then we, we transited into the current uh, PSA, which is a Payment Service Act, which we became a major payment institution with the license activity being e-money itself. So all these things were pretty much significant milestones. So after 2019 is where everything is ready. We know we can push out the product. MES is aware that we are pushing out such a product. And then that's where the product launched, I think, in late uh, 2019 itself. I think what is really interesting is that in the discussion, you have actually brought up the regulation piece and how to work with the regulatory bodies to ensure that there is oversight. So I'm pretty curious then for partners-wise, what is the calculus behind the choice of supported blockchain protocols, which I understand currently there's only support for Ethereum and Zilliqia, and will it be open to other layer one blockchains, which also want to build 
on XSGD itself? So Ethereum that definitely was the first choice because as everyone knows, that's where most of the DeFi projects are happening. It is has the largest ecosystem. And I'm a big fan of Ethereum, right? So I think that itself is uh, a given. When we first launched the product, we really knew that we have to launch it on Ethereum, but we all know that Ethereum have you know, problems. Uh, scaling is always an issue. I still remember the CryptoKitty days that I have two CryptoKitty and everything start crashing. The, the speed is a major issue, right? And ultimately, we are a, a payment infrastructure company. We look at real-world use cases, and we know for sure that Ethereum is current state is not suitable for real-world transaction that is in the microseconds, right? Which we are probably used to. Your fast transfer is like have an SLA of 15 seconds, right? So that itself is why we, we started to look for other solutions out there, other blockchain that are fully programmable during complete is allowing us to basically build on top of that. And that's where we, we got known to uh, some of the cons is Zilika, the blockchain itself. Actually, Zilika is a local team. I don't know whether actually people know. Zilika uh, is a, a team of uh, NUS professors. And I, I got to know um, quite a few of them through a networking event and stuff. And we found their team to be the right mix of you know, academic versus you know, prudent approach to solving real world problems. I think 2017 is where things start to go a bit crazy in the crypto side of things. We were extremely cautious in choosing our partner then. Because when I first tell people I want to do a stablecoin project, I think naysay us a lot. But at the same time, you also attract a large part of partners that comes our way that might not be the right choice for a prudent approach to the ecosystem itself, right? So we, we took a long time to decide on a partner itself. And, and Zilika proven and their team proven out to be a, a good choice then because the technology that they have, the speed is very suitable for what we are looking for. And we have common vision for a long-term sustainable play in this whole ecosystem itself. For uh, other layer one solution, uh, definitely. I think uh, we have actually been approached by quite a bit of other layer one protocol, even layer two solution as well. This is a quite an exciting space. We should have something to announce soon. So stay tuned for that as well. So how do you work with some of your key partners, for example, CoinHako, Gemini, and even Uniswap as well? First, I think a lot of these exchanges are our existing client already, right? We have been serving them since 2015, some of them. Some of them really have a long history of working with us, right? And we have been primarily their payment partners. So we help them accept payments. We help them send funds back to the end user. That was the key MVP, right? In some sense, that was our key value proposition. We continue to do that for all these exchanges and, and companies that you mentioned. Stablecoin was a new push that we had started to talk with them since 2019, when we wanted to really go ahead and launch the product, quite a lot of them have supported this initiative because, like I said, this is something that they wanted to allow them to have faster liquidity settlement between the exchanges, be able to build more interesting blockchain solution offering on top of the current existing ecosystem. In terms of Uniswap and stuff, I think we are pretty much talking to them, but you no know, listing of this is more pretty much a democracy process. You have to just put it out on the blockchain, get it audited, and then have the community rally around to support it. So it's a bit different dealing with you know, traditional exchanges that are more centralized versus decentralized protocol. So we have uh, quite a bit working relationship so far with a mix of different partners. I'm curious, will you create stable coins for other currencies in Southeast Asia? For example, there might be a stable coin version for say the Malaysia ringgit or Indonesia rupiah. I'm not asking for the product roadmap. I'm asking, is there a context for there to have these stable coins to exist as well? Yeah, we believe so. And that is why I think we launched StraightX, right? So you see, when we launched the Stablecoin project, and that's recently a rebranding, you can check us out at StraightX.com. StraightX is an initiative to basically push for Stablecoin initiative across Southeast Asia. So that was already on the top of our head since the genesis of the product. How this was solved and helped to bridge and connect the entire region itself. Having a Stablecoin initiative that is in each of these markets 
and then allowing that to allow facilitate FX transaction that can be fully programmable on the blockchain is definitely the angle. But of course, it will take some time for us to get there. So we are definitely been working hard on that. There has been an active new stablecoin initiative that we have been working internally. We should be able to announce it soon and launch it in the coming, uh, hopefully, months. We'll look forward to that. But I'm very curious. China will be launching their digital cryptocurrency, the digital yuan. And I believe that it's just a matter of time that many countries will either launch their own cryptocurrencies, including Singapore with their famous Pulau Ubin project under MAS. Will there be a plethora of sovereign digital currencies in the market? And eventually, will these cryptocurrencies also subsume initiatives like StraightX and maybe even like DAI, many of the stablecoins that are already in the market itself? From a stablecoin perspective, if you look at it, Adoption and circulation is definitely the key. There's a lot of US dollar stablecoin already out there, but the predominant ones are what we already know, Tether, which is the first one, and then USDC and BUSD are doing pretty well as well. So I think from a market perspective, Southeast Asia is still in its early stages. We probably do not have that much of debt to have so many stablecoin. End of the day, circulation and liquidity is everything. So you know, the one that is pretty much have the most adoption in terms of circulating and support will be the one that most probably 90% of everything will happen at. However, at the same time, uh, we definitely welcome competition. Like I said, the mission of us doing all these things from the very beginning is to build a more accessible, open financial ecosystem. More people participating in this is definitely better than having a barrier to entry itself. So we definitely welcome competition and more folks coming in to help us improve this whole ecosystem as a whole because we love feedback and see how can we constantly do better. But uh, from our talk with the regulators so far, at least from the MES perspective, I think other jurisdictions will have their own internal consideration. MES is still discussing internally, but from the last few conversations that we have, it is unlikely they will be doing it directly from the central bank itself. So a CBDC issued by the central bank is probably not the, the direction that they are thinking of heading. They are looking for industrial players like ourselves or banks and others to basically provide that from their end. And that's something that I think we have discussion with and they are still observing this very, very closely. But you, you definitely see project rubins and stuff. And I think that the segment is large enough in that perspective. Our retail, our, our client base and our solution are more focused on the retail customers itself. And if you look at project Rubin and the likes of those projects by MAS, they are also look, they are looking probably at the M1 kind of segment between banks and between security exchanges that probably will not touch the retail side of things that we are more heavily involved in. So there might be a space where this can coexist and stablecoin to stablecoin swap is already happening on the US side of things. So we're happy to see where this thing develops. The big picture question, how do you see the fintech and cryptocurrency space evolving in Southeast Asia? What are the conditions that you think must exist when fintech and cryptocurrency actually converge at some point? We're back in Singapore full-time since 2015, 2016. A lot have definitely changed. The whole market as a whole has become much, much more mature. We are, we're very fortunate to be at, at the early stages. And I think when we first came back, most of the, the companies that got funded and the fintechs I've been working on are all focused on infrastructure building and fundamental payment solution offering. That's where we started at and we were basically building our infrastructure. But you know, the last few years definitely see a lot of these things getting mature. We have seen a lot of new startups being funded and products being rolled out that are super exciting that are you know beyond infrastructure. You saw products like Buy Now Pay Data, which is now the biggest rage right now. But uh, more towards the investment side, crowdfunding was a big thing then as well. So lending product, store of value in terms of being able to invest your, your funds to get better returns are also very big right now. So those are the areas that we feel are going to be continuing this trend whereby 
a lot more traditional finance product will be now available through fintech to be able to get better access. If you ask me about the condition for that, I think it's more about user education, right? I think it takes a while for trust to be built up. It took us five to six years to even work with a regulator to know that, you know, we are a reputable company. We will follow the rule of law. We will do things the proper way. I think it has impact on the whole entire industry in terms of what MESC, which industry to regulate and how the consumer view us as well, right? I think it, it takes a long while to build up trust that you should be sending money online to somebody. So it's the same applies to product and, and the space itself. I think the condition for that to really work for cryptocurrency and fintechs to converge is consumer education, that more people need to understand fundamentally what are they putting their money into, the kind of product that they use, how does it work? Why does it work like that? We see three cycle of, this is the third one I can mention of this whole cryptocurrency bloom and stuff, right? I think the number of users entering are also maturing. And the kind of question that they ask are actually much more sophisticated, right? Like yourself, you'll be asking about MetaMask and stuff like that. You know, we, we, the last cycle and last few cycles, we probably only heard for people is the first thing they ask is, will Bitcoin prices go up? You know, where can I buy Bitcoin? And then have definitely uh, reached a tipping point, right? Now people actually understand why they think this is interesting. What are the value add to the ecosystem? What are the other financialized finance product that they should be looking at instead of, you know, beyond the speculative side of things, right? So I think those are the, the things that I will be constantly observing if I were to build a company in that space, you ask me. But that itself is um, a definitely a tipping point and conversion point, right? The user trust side and the consumer education needs to reach a certain tipping point before all these things will come together as one. But I think it's actually either already happening or will be happening soon because we, we hear the last six months, a lot of conversation with our local players and our industrial partners are all looking at how to merge these two, right? We have fintech company looking into offering cryptocurrency offering and more traditional company looking to figure out how to allow their end users to have some kind of crypto exposure as well. Anyway, many thanks for coming on the show. So before we close, I will have two questions. So my first question is, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? I recently reread the book uh, Zero to One by Peter Thier. I think that's actually one of the YC <laughs> must-read list. Peter Thier is one of the partners at Y Combinator. When I first had a YC, was where he launched his book, so he gave a talk then. I, I, I literally just skimmed through it. Like I just, I'm a pretty <laughs> lazy guy. But you know, recently when I pick it up again, I actually read it again, there's a lot of insight in that. And I, I look back at my journey in, in running the company itself, that is like almost deja vu, right? A lot of things that he described then, you might not fully understand, but when you experience it, it's really you know, the key to basically how to shape the company culture, how to, you know, be razor focused on a certain part of the, the business activity that you should be you know, sweating over versus other things that probably should not be wasting your time on. I will highly recommend anyone that's starting a company to take a look at zero to one. That is actually a, a good book to really look at. So how do my audience find you? I'm pretty much uh, available on LinkedIn itself. You can reach out to me. I'm Tianwei. You can search for me on LinkedIn. I often reply to people who message me on LinkedIn itself. I've been doing angel investing as well in this region. So feel free to reach out uh, via LinkedIn itself. So you can Google us at Analyze Asia and you can find our podcast on every platform out there, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. And of course, if you can, please leave us a review and a five-star rating, of course. This has been a very interesting conversation, Tianwei, and I look forward to having another conversation on stablecoin. Maybe we can dive even like deeper on what's the process like bringing other stablecoins to life in the region as well. Sure. So stay tuned by checking out www.straightx.com. I think you can see a lot more information coming that way. Run it, run it, run it.